Welcome back to the Culture Blast podcast. I'm your host, Farah Nayeri, and it's a pleasure for me to present another episode of our show, which so many of you are tuning into all over the world. As you know, Culture Blast is a series of deep dive interviews with major personalities from across the world of culture. So far, I've interviewed Emma Thompson, Niall Rogers, Nan Golden, Elif Shafak, and Wayne McGregor. And they have been outstanding guests who you should hear if you haven't already. I now bring you another international superstar, the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei, whose art is very much infused with activism. Art and activism are also the themes of my new book, Takedown, Art and Power in the Digital Age, which focuses on the overlap between contemporary culture and politics. We will also discuss Ai Weiwei's beautifully written memoir, One Thousand Years of Joys and Sorrows, in which he tells the story of his father, the great Chinese poet Ai Ching, and himself, both of them artists who have been persecuted in their homeland. As Ai Weiwei writes at the end of his book, my past and my present have become disconnected, like the skeleton of a dead animal whose bones have long lost connective tissue, and despite my best efforts, I still find it hard to present the entirety of my experience. This same puzzle is found in my art. As with someone trekking at night through the rain, every step I take brings me closer to the place I want to go, But where is it I want to go? This episode of Culture Blast was sponsored by AXA XL. Ai Weiwei, thank you so much for accepting this invitation and being my guest on Culture Blast. A very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much. Weiwei, I first met you in 2010 when you filled the Turbine Hall at Tate Modern with 100 million porcelain sunflower seeds, each of which had been hand-painted. And I remember walking on the bed of seeds on the press day when it was still allowed and sitting on the seeds next to your adorable 18-month-old son, Ai Lao, and his mother. Then in 2015, I interviewed you for the New York Times. You just left China for London to open your major exhibition. Then in mid-interview, you took my picture with your mobile phone and later posted it on Instagram. And one of your many followers said, but who is she? (laughs) Which, of course, is a very good question. Weiwei, um, here's my first question to you in this podcast. After spending a few years in Germany and in the UK, you're now living in Lisbon uh, and you seem to like it. How's life for you in Portugal and uh, what do you like about Portugal? Well, first, uh, so nice uh, uh, we can have a talk. And uh, yes, I moved to Portugal uh, it's about uh, two years during the whole pandemic. Uh, I spent uh, most of the time here. And uh, before that, I never come to Portugal. And uh, basically, I, I know very little about uh, this piece of land. And uh, once I arrived, it was uh, uh, summertime, uh, bright sunshine. This sunshine reminded me my childhood. Oh, yeah. When I was in Gorbi Desert in Xinjiang. Yeah. Um, every summer have strong uh, sunshine, and the color of the sky is also just the same. 
okay, if I can find a location here, I would mm. like to settle here. And, uh, you know, it's very simple uh, decision. And uh, the first day we found uh, a location, uh, this lady is selling a piece of her property. So I went there, I remember it was so hot. I said, yes, I will, I will have it. <laughs> Since that, I stayed here. Yeah. And uh, my, my situation later, I would think, why I make decisions so quick and so almost like... A, impulsively. Uh, impulsively. Yeah, impulsively or almost like a carelessly. Yeah. Uh, only because I have an advantage being a refugee. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you trust your intuition and you don't think more than that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess it is the sunshine that drew you to Portugal, and I'm not surprised, but I presume there are other nice things about Portugal, like maybe the food and the people and the sea. Gradually, uh, I realized people here are much softer, slower, and, uh, and very kind. I ask the people, you know, um, you know, many Chinese uh, restaurant owners. I said, oh, "Why you are settled here?" Then they they told me here there's less discrimination. They feel comfortable. Yeah, I see. I see. But of course, the last couple of years have been incredibly tough for all of us here uh, living on the planet. And I presume they've been difficult for you because of this pandemic. And, and of course, you made a documentary about the pandemic called Coronation, which came out in 2020, very early on, looking at China and Wuhan and, and, uh, and all of that. I just wanted you to speak a little bit about the coronavirus epidemic and what you think of it and, and how you have been in these last two years. Um, yes, but I made my first uh, film about the pandemic is 2003 when SARS just started in China. When I and my brother started to do some uh, early recordings, and we made a film just just simply documents what's going on, what this people's life, and how government dealings with it. You know, it's so when this pandemic happens, I was in Rome to directing this uh, Toronto uh, opera. Right. So daytime I was in the in the in the theater, and nighttime I talked to people in China who I know for a long time, and uh, they they were my studio members. So I said, uh, "You are in Wuhan, and you are in lockdown." Why yeah. don't you start to make uh, recordings? And uh, so I have to teach them how and use what kind of equipment. And finally, we have the film. Yeah, I mean, you basically directed it from a distance because you can't go to China, right? That's that's right. Also, it's uh, a bit secretly because, uh, you know, I don't want people to know there's someone going to make a film about this. Sure, of course, yeah. But I mean, what do you think of, I mean, how have you been in these last two years and what do you think of the coronavirus epidemic and the role of China or, you know, could it could this have come from anywhere? I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, um, they are still not clear about where is there, where this come from, you know, yeah. even after millions of people um, lost their life and they're still about... Uh, uh, we're still in there, you know, in pandemic. Shanghai yeah. uh, 
uh, facing a very severe lockdown in past uh, uh, weeks, and still nobody knows when that will stop in China. Yeah, and I mean, how have you been health-wise, your family? I would say I have been doing very fine. You know, I I have been very productive. We had uh, three, four documentary films uh, comes out, and uh, I have made uh, uh, many art shows. This is a very productive time, and also my new book uh, finally yeah. comes out. Yeah, we're about to get to that. But, you know, I was watching some of these documentaries that were made about you in past years, and there were some very touching scenes with your mother who <laughs> who would be sitting there saying, I worry about you, Wei Wei. Please stop making so much trouble. Can't you just sit still? And you'd be like, oh, mom, you know, don't be silly. And, uh, you know, <laughs> please don't be, <laughs> don't be so over-emotional. And so I'm kind of thinking of you now, you know, living outside the country, and away from your mom. When was the last time you saw her? How can you see her and your brother and the rest of your family? That, that was uh, you know, many years ago, but gradually I realized mom is a mom. She is 90 years old, but she's really willing to talk to me every day. She tells me I'm the only one she worries, and uh, which is true. She, yeah. she is so scared after my arrest, and she yeah. realized she can uh, lose me any moment. So yeah. I try to comfort her. I try to say I'm a strong person. I'm in a very safe uh, location, and uh, I take care of myself. So, yeah, it's just like that. And, uh, yeah. So you're in touch with her every day. Um, uh, yeah, of, almost. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Um, let's move on to the subject of uh, your father. I mean, a very important, another very important presence in your life. He was, of course, one of the most prominent poets in 20th century China, and yet he was made to do forced labor in northwestern China. And when you and I spoke in 2015 for the New York Times interview, you recalled that for five years, this eminent poet was made to clean public toilets. You said they were a mess, you told me. They were fly-infested in summer, they were iced over in winter, and the accumulated waste formed a frozen pagoda, you said, and and you kind of turned it, <laughs> you turned it into a joke. But of course, it was not a joke at all. Um, how did watching your father serve out his sentence in such tough ways make you the artist that you are? Well, my father studied in Paris in the nineteen thirties, and uh, as a first generation of the revolutionary writer. Yeah. And uh, but punished as anti-revolution, anti-party, and uh, being exiled for twenty years. Yeah. And I was born at the same moment, so I experienced uh, the whole inhuman and uh, mistreatment of uh, such a fine man. And he could die any moment uh, when I was being with him in the Xinjiang yeah. re-education camp. Yeah. So that probably teaches me a lot. What, what did it? What did it teach you? Do you think? First, it teaches me about uh, this kind of authoritarian um, society. You know, the the society cannot accept different ideas, different uh, opinion, or different uh, even 
attitude. Tyranny, and, you know, yeah, authoritarianism. Yeah, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And also, mm-hmm. um, it tells me the mass. The mass can be so blind and so, you know, there's yeah. not, nothing intellectual about There's no argument and there's no uh, real uh, comprehension of anything. It's just, it just follows the leader's uh, yeah, yeah. principle and uh, punish somebody who, who have no crime at all. So those things are very important, actually, for me to to understand. It takes uh, uh, mm-hmm. so much pain to understand those things. Yeah. So the, the you you know you understood about authoritarianism, and you also understood about how the masses can blindly follow whatever the people at the top say, even if the person who's being accused, like your father, is completely innocent. Uh, which is true, and also you also understand. At a certain moment in your life, maybe all the time, you're alone. You know, doesn't matter you're 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 in being isolated or you become a popular, but in the facts you're alone. You yeah. you have to be very clear and very conscious and very being very responsible for whatever you see and you do. Right. What do you mean by a certain time in your life you're alone? You mean we are always alone, or I think we are always alone. We are, you know, as a as a human, we are. We think we are in the in the crowd, or yeah. in, But actually, every soul, every individual is alone, and uh, and right. uh, nobody can really taking care of you, and you also cannot help others that much, and uh, so that is very dark. Uh, facts, but uh, yeah. we have to really admit this is uh, this is the situation. All right. So what that means is that your whole life, you from when you were a very little boy, you realized you had to look after yourself. Oh yeah, that's that's very essential. You you not only look at yourself, but you have to take care of your spirit uh, being, spiritual being. So mm-hmm. that means uh, you have to make uh, your own judgment. And you have to speak out of the, your inner truths. You are trying to defending the individual rights. And uh, that's what I have learned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand. And um, this memoir of yours, which came out a few months ago, it's it's very well written. You know, you, you're a talented writer as well as a talented artist. And your father was also good at both things. Uh, when he lived in Paris in the 30s, as you say, I think one of his paintings was shown at the Salon des Indépendants, so he was painting, even though this man was a poet and a great writer, very famous Chinese poet and writer, so he could paint very well too. Often as human beings, I think we end up resembling our parents, even if some of us don't want to. Do you feel like you sometimes or always are walking in your father's footsteps? Well, this is very ironic that maybe my father is a person I never really want to assemble. I never really want to uh, to follow his uh, right. footsteps because it's yeah. so unfortunate, so painful. And to see him in such a misery life, yeah, almost it's not possible to, to accept uh, to, to be as an artist. So I start to learn art. Still, because I, that's the only possibility for me to avoid the mainstream propaganda. So I'm hiding in the in the art 
but uh, ironically, um, very late I realized um, my art become uh, even more political, and uh, I cannot hide it. I become uh, I have to become like a, almost like a fighter or a soldier uh, to to do exactly the same as my father did. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was my next question. Um, you are an artist and not an activist or a politician. But so, I mean, there's something also about art that attracts you. It's not just a place where you could hide. It's your talent. You you draw beautifully. You know, you, you, you're an architect. You, you know, you have a hundred different talents in the visual arts. But I mean, what is it about the visual arts that attracts you? Visual art is about uh, you how you look at the outside, uh, you know, the world with uh, your own language, your your own uh, narrative. Mm-hmm. And uh, that takes um, long experience and, uh, and also um, it's not something you can learn. You have right. to live through it. So, so that mean, that's why I said the artist has to be an activist only because you are living through your art. You are not just a talent to present one work which can be called art. As an artist, you're first as human being, you experience all the um, joys and sorrows of the human society and they're trying to develop a language and skill. So this is, uh, that's how art works. Yeah. As a journalist who's been following you for a number of years, I've always thought that one of the most important components of your art is empathy. Whether it's in the installations you dedicated to the more than 5,000 school children who died in the 2008 Sichuan earthquake because their school was made of terrible, shabby material, or whether it's the powerful documentary you dedicated to the refugee crisis in 2017, which was called Human Flow, it seems to me you often use art to show compassion for fellow humans. And not all artists do that. I mean, there are artists who, you know, they just portray their, you know, personal life and their breakup with their boyfriend or girlfriend or, you know, their sex life. Or they look in the mirror, they're narcissistic, they do self-portraits. Why is your artistic language so much about empathy and about other human beings? Well, if I look at art, I realize that's the best tool uh, to, to defend humanity defense uh, human dignity. So nothing better than that. Uh, the dictators, that's why they hate art, they hate poetry, they hate writers, only because that's uh, something they can never challenge. You know, when something come out which can defense humanity and uh, can come yeah. out a language, they will never have uh, equivalent uh, weapon to destroy it. So that's that's gradually I realize uh, I can um, I can let my art functioning have the same kind of uh, defending the humanity. There's uh, tyranny, but also there's uh, culture and art, and that is uh, uh, very clear for me. So uh, my art mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. cares about. Uh, uh, humanity and uh, human rights and the uh, freedom of speech. 
Right. But you are also one of the biggest names in contemporary art, which, of course, has exploded in the past couple of decades. Prices of art have gone through the roof and your own prices have gone through the roof. And of course, you know, art and art prices put bread on your table. And and I just wondered how you feel about being a player uh, in this speculative and capitalistic market uh, that you yourself are describing. And, and what are your own general feelings about the money you make? I think uh, money is just a tool, you know. Uh, basically, it's uh, you can buy uh, uh, your liberty or you can be as a cage. You, you are yeah. locked into so-called money. Yeah. So I don't think money can give me a meaning to my art. And most of my work has nothing to do with money, but the market uh, selects uh, their way for very strange reason. And uh, it, it sells, uh, and uh, sometimes sells high, but uh, I still think, uh, use my father's words, just live a good life to to give a right message and to fight for your what you believe. And the other sense, well, come as a wind and uh, and uh, go gone with the wind, you know, it's nothing going to left. And uh, I, I don't I don't really care about uh, uh those things and uh, with money or without money I'm still going to do okay. So uh I hate to 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 say use money measurement to, about art is uh, I think it's killing art and uh, it's not uh, it's not the right um, or not very not the right approach you think yes and a very bad uh, i think a bad picture there yeah i got it let's rewind a moment to um very very difficult challenging moment you lived through which is probably the climax of your book i would say in 2011 you spent 81 harrowing days in detention in a tiny secret location in china watched over by guards in everything you did, including taking a shower. I mean, everywhere you went in that tiny space, you had these guards watching over you. And it was a soul-destroying experience that you recreate very vividly in your memoir, but you also recreated in a six-part diorama that hundreds of thousands of people, museum-goers in the West, saw uh, at the Royal Academy, at the Venice Biennale, a number of years ago. And um, when you were enduring that experience, you decided, I need to write a memoir, a book, to make sure that my son Ailao is aware of what his father lived through, and but also of what his grandfather lived through. And so that this has produced the, the wonderful memoir I was referring to earlier on, which was recently published, and once again, I recommend to listeners. But the question that lingers with me is, is... Has that trauma not left lasting scars in you, psychological scars? Like, how can one come out of that experience not being, you know, traumatized for life, wounded, scarred? I, I think there's always a scar, but very often, you see, when a bone was broken, when it's healing, that uh, broken... Um, area become even growing uh, stronger. Right, right. So my my healing um, message is to openly discuss matters. 
you know, any matter. I am always willing to discuss any matter, politically or artistically, and uh, yeah. the, not only in China, but also in the West. So that's the only way helped me to to growing, if you talk about growing or surviving, maybe that's better words. So I did uh, uh, the same way to present the 81 days, the darkest possibility. And because I had to let people know what is really going on, what, what you have to face in when you're in such a condition. So that's almost like revenge. The only revenge an individual can get towards authority is to speak out the truth and the facts, you know, to present the facts and speak out the inner truth. So I think I tried my best, and uh, uh, maybe that's why I'm still alive, you know. That's why they yeah. let, me, let me out, because they think this guy is just impossible. You cannot really change him a bit. Well, sure. But I mean, on a personal level, and I don't mean to get too personal, I mean, this is something that leaves um, major scars that one requires therapy for for years. You know, I mean, that's what I mean. I mean, as a human being, you know, uh, uh, how affected are you by this? Because it's something you can't really control and and writing about it or making a diorama is not going to cure you in that sense. Well, I don't know how well I've been cured. Maybe I'm still in the deep uh, psychological trauma. Right. And that, you know, we're all in some kind of mental, mental condition we cannot yeah. really clearly describe. But, uh, but uh, <laughs> that's a given condition, so... Yeah, yeah. Then what what can you do? Right, I understand. Um, when you and I spoke in 2015, I did ask you how, because you were just coming out of China, I said, how are you, how would you continue your practice outside of China? Because in my mind, I thought at the time, you can take Ai Weiwei out of China, but you can't really take China out of Ai Weiwei. What do you think which now that true. it's been, is it true? Yeah, which is true. And, it's true. Uh, yeah, yeah, normally we say out of sight, out of mind, but yeah. China is never out of sight. So No. And so, I mean, the work that you've done since then, you've done a lot of work. You just, you know, finished uh, directing Turon Dote at uh, the Rome Opera, as you were saying. And so many other um, exhibitions and works have happened since then. But what, I mean, reflecting on these... Uh, I guess uh, seven years that you've spent outside of China. Um, what? How would you describe the your art practice now? Well, I try, still trying to find out uh, right position. Uh, you know, when you have a, a bad night of sleep, you would turn this way and turn that way. You, you know, you you yeah. <laughs> you uh, adjust your pillows and uh, whatever. You know, I'm always in that position. I never really settled. I never really my mind or my my body or you know, it's always uh, I'm trying to adjust myself. So as a result, something may be called as art or. I really thought my all my work can be called art, but it is uh, hard to find another uh, vocabulary to describe that because there, there certainly is a self-expression and certainly can build up some kind of communication, and uh, certainly it can not really accept by the existing traditional aesthetics 
but rather to to yell out for for its own voice. So I I don't know. I but uh, since uh, I'm still alive, so still maybe have a, a few more years. So I, let's see. Well, you're a young guy. I mean, a few more years. You got many <laughs> <Okay>. more years. <laughs> um, right, sixty. Sixty is the new forty. Uh, I, I wait, wait. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, you know, you have been making a lot of art in the West. But I guess it always somehow refers back to China. Would you say or? Um, yes, of course. I, I, I think uh, China is a. Uh, for me, China is a problem, right? Uh, because uh, you know I'm being forced out uh, from the land which I was born. Yes. So that's uh, that's a, a major problem personally, but at uh, same times I gradually realize how China become China, uh-huh. and uh, how China's uh, uh, position in dealing or in relating to the rest of the world. So I have much larger picture. To look at China, yeah, and uh, of course uh, that would draw uh, different uh, conclusions. But still, you know, so since uh, I'm I'm learning and I'm very observing and I'm trying to uh, to really clearly understand what's going on. Right, right. Let's go back to the discussion about your art. I mean, your art has always been political and activist because you grew up in a tyranny and because you are the son of who you are. You know, the the fact is that, uh, as you, I'm sure you've noticed, contemporary art in the West nowadays is more activist and political than ever. It's something I write about in my book, Takedown, which you kindly read and uh, commented on. It just seems like every museum, gallery, exhibition nowadays feels an obligation to denounce <laughs> political issues, sociopolitical issues of gender or race or colonialism or oppression in every way they can. And uh, I just wondered how you saw this trend in the Western art world and whether it made you feel at home because this activism is something you've always done. Well, I think my activism uh, have a very clear distinction, very uh, distinctive, very different from the so-called general Western museums or culture sectors approach. I think uh, when they talk about gender, race, and uh, and uh, the other issues, very often they're not really uh, defending the human rights, but rather to really build a stronger divided society. And that's how they're promoting that, because they think that's so easy to to just pretend to be politically correct. Yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, this young man, young boy, who is the love of your life, Ai Lao, who I had the pleasure, as I said, of seeing when he was a year and a half rolling around on the sunflower seeds <laughs> at Tate Modern on the very first day you were showing them to the world and when it was still allowed to go and walk on the seeds. Um how is Ailao and how is he following in your footsteps and in his grandfather's footsteps? I imagine Ailao to be an artistic young boy. Well, in, in his uh, annual report, yeah. his art has a lower uh, grade <laughs> than others. His, his best is uh, history and logic 
and uh, and uh, even German. Oh wow! Uh, so okay. I I feel proud of him. I said yes. Certain class, he just let it pass. You know, not yeah. not to pay too much attention. You know, this is uh, yeah. You know, you have to really do what you have to do. You know, certain certain skills is absolutely needed for anybody to survive. Absolutely. So. And he is doing okay, I guess. I'm never encouraging him to do anything like art or poetry, <laughs> but he's 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 balanced. You know, he yeah. has seen so much. And uh, with me, you know, we went to refugee camps. We went mm-hmm. to Mexico or or Israel or Brazil. You know, everywhere. So he has seen quite a lot. But I have to understand. I don't want him to be. Like me or like his grandfather, he yes. has you know the new generation are facing very different world, and they I don't know how they survive. Yeah. It's really they have to find out their own way. Well, sure, but I mean you know when growing up as your son, uh, you know there is a certain trajectory that he couldn't avoid really, and that is fascinating to him. <laughs> I mean, is he artistically? Does he have artistic skill? I mean, I imagine he. Oh, he he's a strongly. Uh, I think uh, he's doing. He can do better than me. In, in, uh, <laughs> if you talk about a skill, really? but of course he doesn't have a same kind of background or understanding. But he, he's skilly. Uh, wow. He's very skillful. So he can draw very well and paint and all that stuff. Oh yes, he he can. <laughs> Find his own narrative. For that's, sure, that's yeah. most important. Yeah. Well, we'll be watching him and watching you, of course. <laughs> you know, for many, many more years. But um, uh, I also wanted to ask you, um, Weiwei, how you feel about the fact that you can't, I guess, can't go back to China. You know how how much how much of an injury that is for you to live through. Well, uh, I think the the, the worst sin uh, uh, is uh, the language. And, uh, you know, I'm using a foreign language to talk to you and to talk to others, which yeah. only can really not fully represent me, but uh, maybe 20% mm-hmm. or, or even less. So I'm struggling with that. I'm not a skillful yeah. uh, swimmer in this uh, language ocean. So, and <laughs> that's that's yeah. the, uh, the the situation. But the rest, uh, I'm fine. You know, I've been spending forty years in China. I don't need to spend a, a second more. So, fair enough. Yeah, and I just wondered what projects you've got lying ahead, and and what you know major uh, productions you'd like to involve yourself in. I mean, you've done a lot in your life already. Well, I the. I think I need a rest, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I always question, well, you know, how many should a person do or why we have to do that? And, uh, is this uh, effective yeah. or not? So I always question about those things. Yeah, but you, you never stop at the same time. I mean, even if you had the opportunity to rest, I don't think you would take it, right? Uh, yeah, it depends on how do you uh, interpret what is the rest. Sometimes yeah. uh, something gives you joy, you think that uh, that is a rest. The best way yeah, to that's true. to give you mind or uh, uh, some kind of space there. So... <laughs> 
yeah. But but I mean, still, I mean, what are your next projects? I imagine you've got a, a few big uh, ones in the pipeline. I really, every time uh, I, I try to answer that, uh, my mind is so empty, really. I'm completely empty. I, I, yeah. I always think, uh, oh, yeah, I can walk into any direction. direction. Like yeah. uh, uh, the 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I was in New York City. And yeah. I would wake up uh, walking um, into any direction. And I do feel the world doesn't care. And also, I, you know, it doesn't matter which direction you're walking to. Yeah. I mean, with the pandemic, a lot of us have become conscious, more conscious of just how turbulent and unpredictable life is. To me, it feels more unstable, more turbulent, more unpredictable. But maybe it always was unpredictable and turbulent and the rest of us didn't realize it. What do you think? I think the the West has been, you know, uh, relatively peaceful and uh, uh, for past 70 years. And yeah. that is very long. That's uh, three generations of uh, wonderful, you know, peace, peaceful yeah. life. Yeah. And uh, enjoy so so much uh, uh, financial or material uh, richness, mm-hmm. but suddenly there's a certain sense can really questioning that right. and uh, put us in a very vulnerable stage. So of course people are panic, and yeah. uh, and I think I think there's a reason to do that. That means. Uh, or understanding about uh, human life are still very shallow and uh, limited. And it can change. It can change to much worse condition. And uh, could be yeah. crisis, uh, more crisis happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's not very reassuring, <laughs> Wei Wei. <laughs> yeah. I, I also wonder what you think of the contemporary art world. You've discussed it to some extent in the sense that you talk about the capitalistic aspects of it. But I also wanted to know how you feel about artists, your fellow artists um, in the contemporary art sphere who are very successful and who are very talked about. Do you think that you are living among a great generation of very talented artists, or do you think artists have been corrupted by the whole money thing? How do you feel about this uh, community that you're a part of, this elite community called contemporary art? (laughs) I uh, yeah, it's sad to see there's no such a community as an artist. Artists start as an individual. The best position an artist can be is to protect himself as an individual. I see. Uh, so there's only a few artists can do that, mm. and both being as an individual and being successful. You know, very few, and many of them are being successful, but not as a individual doesn't provide any uh, nutrition for other artists anymore. You know, it's not right. uh, interesting at all. Right, right. Because you think the market has kind of swallowed them up and they are producing work to feed the market? I think uh, people producing work, not, not necessarily just feeding the market, but also they don't know what to do. You know, it's, it's just uh, one type of work they are yeah. they're doing, just like the doing some kind of bakery for the shops uh, to right. sell. Right. So I would say so about the soul or human consciousness is a real thing in any society. 
Okay, but so, I mean, what if somebody says that about you, Weiwei, saying, oh, yeah, Weiwei is always producing this kind of work, and and he's now part of the big uh, art star system. I'm just playing devil's advocate. You know, there are people who, you know. Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, it could be true. I think we need more argument. We need more criticism. We yeah. need uh, someone like you write this book, and, uh, you know, to, to really discuss those matters. Right. You know, we, we, it, the society only can be healthy when there's more discussion, one more question, and a more subversive uh, mm. argument. Okay, well, I'm going to try and carry on asking questions. <laughs> uh, Weiwei, just we're, we're coming on to the end of this wonderful conversation. I just wondered what you do in Portugal in your spare time, you know, um, like for instance, when, yeah, when you have a little bit of leisure time, what do you get up to? Well, I'm so far behind because I I need to do some physical work to pull out those grass and uh, Oh yeah. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. To fix the road, there's so many things that I need to, I need I to see. do. And for too long, I, I, I miss the physical work, and that make me not healthy. Not only body not healthy, but spiritually not healthy. I see. So you need to mow the lawn and and stuff like that. Yeah, actually, just use hands to pull out those grass. It's better use machine. And okay. I, I don't use a dishwasher. I don't use, a, you oh, know, wow. I like to wash my clothes by hands. I, I do feel <laughs> nice. I do feel that's my modern or my classic meditation to just just right. clean my, you know, my socks and underwears by hands. That's the oh, more, my God. That's, okay. that's, that's really uh, pleasant for me. So, okay, well, I mean, I could not end on a funnier note. I mean, the picture, <laughs> <laughs> the picture of Ai Weiwei doing laundry, I think that's going to be the one that... Laundry uh, by hand, I yeah, might add. I don't um, trust the machine just pull a button, then everything getting clean. And after I take out, I will smell it. I, I mm. feel a little bit, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just a very old-timer on that. You are, you are. And, and long may it continue. Ai Weiwei, I wanted to thank you so very, very much for joining me on this personal podcast of mine. It's so pleasant to talk to you. I I never realized you're such a good interviewer. Your voice (laughs) is so clear. I'm flattered. Uh, Thank you so much. And uh, I do hope that we will continue having conversations for many more years to come. Thank you, Weiwei. That's very nice. Thank you. Have a good day. My thanks go to Ai Weiwei for accepting this invitation to Culture Blast. If you like this episode and the ones that came before, do make sure and subscribe so you'll never miss a show. And please share the link far and wide so others can listen. This podcast would not have been possible without the great Karina Pierre Rochard, executive producer and co-founder of Culture Blast, and the great Ben Eshmaid, who produces this podcast to such incredible standards. I will be back soon with another great guest. That's a promise. This episode of Culture Blast is sponsored by AXA XL, the property and casualty and specialty risk division of AXA. AXA XL understands and supports collectors, museums and galleries with its expertise and passion for art. By offering comprehensive insurance coverage and risk consulting services to help protect and preserve art for future generations. Visit axaxl.com to find out more.